Okay, good, good evening all. This is Kino Kingdom 46, and um, I've got a cold, so I, I'm struggling a little bit. Um, and if I go on mute at weird times, it'll be because I cough or sneeze. But nothing stops the KK steamroller. Apart from nothing. if I cough, it was slightly worse. And then I <laughs> can we do this another day, Rupert? Yeah. <laughs> I did say, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> We've been really, really amenable about the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I've... Um, it's been a I think you've got the same problem as me where we've watched so many films recently. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at my list and just thinking, like, where do I start? I know. Uh, I, I've had to resort my my ridiculous collection of films into ones I actually want to talk about. And I've just put all the ones which are, you know, they're not particularly better or worse than the others. It's just like they're just so mediocre. <laughs> mediocrity yeah. straight to the bottom and all the best and worst to the top yeah same here i'm, I'm just going to pick and choose as we go through so this is a bit of an off-the-cuff episode um and and also with the arkins dart has been interesting because uh i think i had a few people messaging me saying oh I'm, I'm kind of getting it i'm on the way there i think i'm working this out but of course we've kind of recorded this episode pretty quickly after our last one for us yeah. like within a week so i think people are still they'll probably listen to this and think oh i forgot to send in the arkenstar normally have... they'd have like six months to get from john hurd to jennifer tilly but not this time guys <laughs> well, and that was the thing and the only one i did receive from utah smith is disqualified because as he put it i did a rupert um <laughs> he he said he could you could he knew that Jennifer Tilly, oh sorry, Jennifer Tilly was in a film with Carrie Elwes where um, uh, Kevin Spacey played a corrupt cop, but he couldn't place it, so he just <laughs> read a lot of interviews about Kevin Spacey <laughs> until Edison popped up. So he cheated. It, it was a two-stepper, but it's a yeah. cheated two-stepper. So yeah, Jennifer Tilly to John Hurd. Um, mm. I mean. You basically won by default unless you actually haven't been able to do it. But <laughs> I was how... able to do it actually. It was it okay. was quite, it was quite straightforward. A three stepper. Okay. So jo- John Hurd was in Home Alone with Catherine O'Hara, who was in Lemony Snicket with Jim Carrey, who was in Liar Liar with the lovely Jennifer Tilly. A Liar Liar was a film that I watched. That was my go-to Jim Carrey film as a teenager. Okay. Uh, again, U- Utah Smith actually had a poster of it on his wall. And it's one of those posters. I don't know if you remember it. It just says Liar Liar and it says Jim Carrey. And he's got kind of, he's looking with like a sort of slightly like forlorn and yet smug expression with his hands crossed in a suit. But it's one of those posters that, because I used to look at it when I was going to sleep. It's like the face warps the longer you look at it, and you think, <laughs> yes. "Is that like, is it twisting into a demon's grin?" <laughs> um, so yeah, it's uh, th- that's that was my go-to film for a while. Right. Um, so, I mean, I'm pretty certain we both got a lot to get through. Um, yes. Have you have you got anything you particularly want to kick off with? Well, I was going to start with Double Whammy actually because. Um, they go together for very obvious reasons uh and they were the french connection and the french connection too oh nice because these are on disney plus and um well the original french connection was made in 1971 this was uh, a william friedkin film um and it's about uh, a couple of old school detectives played by gene hackman and roy scheider and they're trying to take down a french heroin dealer in who's come to new york city to do the deal it's sort of a 
partly a hard-boiled thriller, partly a noir, partly an action movie. Uh, I'm not sure it's completely realistic depiction of police work, I won't lie. They don't spend a lot of time doing paperwork, and they do spend a lot of time chasing down perps and shooting suspects in the back as they run away. Well, I mean, poor policing is almost like a... a, 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 a what's the word like a tent staple? pole a yeah. staple a tent pole of this podcast so yeah. i hope I, I hope the policing is especially poor quite frankly. Yeah. this is where most of korean cinema got its ideas from um but yeah so uh but yeah it, it the film looks amazing it really captures the nightmare new york vibe that we see in other films from the 70s like taxi driver and the warriors and it all seems to have been filmed on location including the outrageous car chase in the middle which isn't actually a car chase as such because he's chasing a train um but yes it's a great chase and done on kind of live streets and it it includes some accidental collisions that they kept in the movie which is always cool um a lot of the dynamics we see in in uh french french connection like um like sort of the roguish cops being a pain in the butt to their shouty superior officer they've kind of become cliche now but it's all done with really great acting and a lot of purpose and a genuine sense of danger and threat there's a real sense of darkness and menace in this movie which which frankly only the 70s could deliver it's gritty and actually the violence is still kind of shocking in its suddenness and its recklessness and in this age of very glossy comic book movies this sort of thing feels so grounded and the people feel really fragile and hardly heroic at all frankly um but they are essentially effective cops given the state of crime in new york city at the time so it definitely still holds up this film and you can imagine how impactful it would have been back in the day um this is are you, are you move, good. Let me know when you're going to move on to the French Connection. Too, I am so just that. about to move on to the French Connection too. Am I okay to interject for just a second? Sure. That's cool. Yeah, because I, I remember um, I watched this film, and and as you know, I don't tend to watch films from the well. Actually, the seventies is probably yeah. the furthest back I go. Not not for any real reason. It's just because um, I, I don't tend to watch films from the fifties and sixties. There's no real reason why I'm not, not particularly drawn to them. Well, the seventies is still is often viewed as the kind of birthplace of what we'd call modern cinema i suppose so that's reasonable it's a very different style to anything you know from the 60s and before it's but i I watched the french connection um it must be about six or seven years ago now because i went through a gina hackman phase um which which is a phase i think i'd like to go through every like five to ten years because He is in very few bad films. I mean, even yeah. even stuff like um, Heartbreakers with Sigourney Weaver and Jennifer Love Hewitt, he's still like really funny in it. Enemy yeah. of the State. He's all he always elevates whatever he's in. Yes. But with French Connection, what's always struck me about this is the weird poster. I'm looking yeah. at it now because you were talking then of him shooting the guy in the back as he goes. Oh up yeah, because it's a massive spoiler as well. Yeah, it's a really bizarre thing. But um, and is this the one where he says? Were you picking your feet in a hotel in Poughkeepsie or something? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, weird... what, what is that about? Is that? A I thing? think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's like a police. It's an interrogation tactic because what he's trying to do, because they, the, the kind of background is that they, they chase down this perp into an alleyway and then they're kind of slamming against the wall and they're trying to get information out of him. 
and what he's doing is he's like he's basically shouting at him. he's asking one genuine question and then asking this nonsense question about picking his feet in Poughkeepsie and it's like I think what he's trying to do is firstly disarm the suspect but in a kind you know mentally disarm him um but then on top of that I think what he's trying to do is like almost like force him into into a kind of confession or force him to give up more than he's willing to because to by confusing him so it's quite a funny scene actually because he just keeps on saying he keeps on just jumping in there with a question <laughs> were you picking your feet in Poughkeepsie and it's just like what and the guy's like what are you talking about I think because um, this this film, I didn't realize it was directed by William Friedkin, but yeah. I, I think my lo- looking back, I mean, I don't know if I watched this film as I had a, like you know, a bottle of wine or something, but my overarching memory of it is that it's oddly overwhelming, and it, and it and it ends, and you're I don't think I've ever wanted a film to carry on for like two minutes more, mm. ever. Like it ends, and I thought, oh no, 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 come on, come on, come on, and I and I think. Um, I was so kind of propelled by it that yeah. I feel like I need to revisit it and think, right, I kind of know what happens now. I know I can enjoy it without being super keen on what, what the next scene is going to be, which is obviously yeah. a sign of great cinema. Yeah, it is. A, it is a great piece of work and, um, and it does really hold up. Uh, I would say that the sequel does not hold up quite so well. This was 1975. So quite a long time later, really, it was this one's directed by John Frankenheimer. Um, I think well, he went on to do name. Ronin. Um, anyway, I did like Ronin. Yeah, yeah, it, it kind of flunked compared to the original, and I would say deservedly so. Um, so this time, um, Popeye Doyle, Gene Hackman's character, is in France, in Marseille, to catch the this bad guy who escaped in the first movie, and he's totally out of his depth. Gene Hackman, he's disrespected by the local cops and doesn't speak the language, um, but he's determined to catch this guy. Like, he's such a sad character in this movie because he's desperately trying to make friends in a city that just doesn't want him there. It This one looks much more like a studio picture, studio kind of studio shot picture. It's not as gritty as the first one. And, and it doesn't really make sense, big parts of it, because the bad guy at one point captures Doyle, right? And instead mm-hmm. of killing him, he jacks him up on heroin in order to supposedly find out what he knows about their organization. But, well, apart from the fact that heroin is hardly like a truth serum, why would you do that anyway? Because it's really expensive. Plus, the bad guy has already explained that he's paid off like 60% of the New York Police Department. So now here's this this uh, uh, kind of... Uh, this New York cop with actual integrity outside his jurisdiction in a foreign country. And you're thinking this is the perfect opportunity to kill him. Surely just kill, <laughs> kill Doyle. No, instead they just jack him up on heroin and give him back to the French cops. And he's now a junkie. So the, I've got to stick to this whole heroin thing, right? Cause that the whole heroin sequence goes on for literally about 40 minutes. And there's some really over the top, like cold Turkey scenes. And, but just generally, in this movie, like uh, Gene Hackman's character, he's, he's just a massive liability and he's just not a good cop. He's rude and racist to the local cops. He gets he gets an undercover agent killed. He he gets captured, obviously. And 
during that time they'd have like 50 officers looking for him and then when he's when he gets out and when he's kind of recovered he gets revenge on the bad guys by going to the hotel they're staying in which also has a load of innocent people in it and just setting it on fire so they all come running out um now I think what the ending kind of sums it up in a way for this, because the first film had this all-time great car chase through live traffic in New York City, and this one has like a knackered Gene Hackman jogging after a slow-moving yacht in San France. <laughs> and I just thought it's tired and wheezy, and it just is a perfect metaphor for this movie. Really. It's just it nothing. reminds me of when you said to me, have you ever seen the remake of Total Recall, Brent? And I said, no, not for any reason, I just haven't seen it. And <laughs> you know in the first film, they go to Mars? Yes. Well, in this <laughs> one, they go to London. And you're like, oh, it's not, <laughs> not as magical, is it? <laughs> it's not as like, full, of, full of wonder. They do dig a hole through the entire Earth, so. <laughs> Jesus Christ, with a shovel. Yeah, it takes bloody ages. A laser shovel. Alan laser <laughs> shovel. Um, yeah, so French Connection, yes. French Connection 2, don't bother. But the, the way the first one ends, though, the, 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 is it irritating? Do, do you feel like it stands alone enough to not need to want a sequel? I think it stands for, alone. For purely narrative purposes. I, the ending of, yeah, the first film is, is shocking and ambiguous and dark and... And... I don't, well, it, it kind of, it's a bit like um, something like, uh, what's the other one? The Conversation, you know, where it's like, it's such a dark, weird, ambiguous ending. And you kind of don't feel the need to know anything beyond that. Uh, I feel anyway. I, it just doesn't really, it just didn't, it wasn't, it's just not an interesting enough story, really. French Connection to... Um, and it's not as well made a, f- a film because it's not by William Friedkin. So, can I quickly do two as well, if that's cool? Sure. Um, with I watched this is a documentary, uh, and I know you've seen this, Electric Boogaloo: The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films yes. from 2014. Um, it, this is a, a one I sort of oh, I'm going to cough. Sorry. Such an ill man. Um, th- this one. I've seen it before and I watched it again because I thought maybe I just wasn't in the right frame of mind for the first time around. And I think the problem with this is obviously we love Canon. Canon was kind of the precursor to PM entertainment. Yes. And then after yeah. PM entertainment, after like, you know, you had VHS with Canon uh, DVD with say PM or VHS to DVD. And then of course we've had conversations on the podcast before about how that, that, that mid budget action genre just kind of disappeared when piracy became rampant, everything went online and they started, yeah. they it basically just dropped into like Wesley Snipes making armed response on an industrial estate in Kenya. And you think, yeah. oh, it's just, this is very boring. Yes. Yes. Well, I, 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 obviously we've talked a lot about films made on Rom- Romanian industrial estates to the point that possibly it's even become some sort of in joke. And, I thought I watched this because I thought I want to go back to like the the gold the canon era. To me, the PM Entertainment is really the golden era. Um, I would say so. Yeah. But, but yeah, pushing all that aside, that's a conversation for another day. With Electric Boogaloo, 
you can tell it's made by someone who obviously loved canon but didn't really have access to the key players so it's this sort of outsider's view and you've got like michael dudikoff for a couple of minutes um Dolph Lundgren for like literally like 20 seconds and then you've got Robert Forster, Elliot Gould, Toby Hooper for like, but it's either archival footage or it's just like um like a quip or a comment here or there and really you want these people to to like open up and say their experiences like give me 20 minutes with Dolph Lundgren you know give me give me five minutes with Franco Nero mm. like let 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 <laughs> Boaz Davidson I mean I could this could be 90 minutes of just Michael Dudikoff talking about American Ninja 2 and I wouldn't give a hoot um <laughs> But it felt very like it was trying to just push push in too much, and I realized oh, it. I, I really don't like it that much because it talks about basically how you've got um, with, with the people behind Canon Films. I have to find their names. Sorry, I always get them mixed up. It's the Israeli uh, guys, isn't it? Yeah, the two Israeli. Israeli. Yeah, yeah, and and one is like this. This it's basically one is Godfrey Ho with money. And the other one is just like a really savvy and yet f- uh, and yet sort of quite um, uh, feisty producer. So and then apparently there's a version of this that the reason are oh, Menahem and Golem and Globus, isn't it? Yes. Golem yeah. and Globus. The reason Golem and Globus weren't um, involved in this is because they wanted to do their own one. And their own one is really hard to get hold of. And I'm thinking, I reckon that, that they would be full. They would have had the money to pull in like... Um, Dolph Lundgren and Michael Dudikoff for like you know and to talk about it and I don't care if it's tilted towards positivity because Golden Globus are financing it I just want to know more about Canon Films I don't want this weird expose on them if you know what I mean um so I'm I'm, at the moment I'm trying to track down that version Uh, so if, if if you or anyone listening this finds out where it can get it let me know um so yeah I just I just wish it was a bit more involved and a bit richer, basically. So I won't be watching Letter of Boogaloo again. If I ever think I really want to know more about Canon Films, they should make another one about PM Entertainment. I'm just going to dedicate the time of watching it to try to track down the official version of it. So that's that. The other thing I wanted to talk about really quickly was I'm going to kick off. It is November the 18th, and I'm going to do the first Christmas film of KK 2021. And I watched Home Alone 6, because it is Canon, Home Sweet Home Alone. Uh, directed by Dan Mazer and starring what's his name Max something he's the kid oh from um... what's his name I don't even I, I can't even see his name Archie Yates is Max Mercer so the plot to this is bear in mind I've seen Home Alone 1 and 2 many times I watched Home Alone 3 last year and the only thing I can remember from that entire movie was that there's a guy in it from the episode of Red Dwarf Back to Reality season 5 where he said he's got he says you make you change people from being alive people into being dead people and he's uh, in Twin Peaks as well listen oh really mm-hmm. he's really he's aged really well by the way I looked at a picture of Reese he's like really he could be in the bar to be honest cleaning the bogs if he's lucky um that's a joke that is um so yeah so this film is it's very much a, a huge rehash of home alone unsurprisingly yeah. where it's parents uh the mother's english and they all they're all live in america they just moved in they got this enormous house they go on holiday they leave the kid there and mm. he has a bit of fun uh, and and the twist on this the modernization on this is is that uh two people 
so he drops into someone's house on the way home from something and mm. needs to have pee and his mother says oh look there's an open house over there for viewing we'll pretend we're interested you can use the bathroom we'll go they go in there the it's uh ellie kemper and rob delaney are the people trying to sell the house they're in dire financial straits although there's no evidence of it you know it's one of those films where you think just downsize like you're talking it's like an you're, unbelievable uh, house as well isn't it utterly destitute and you think you could just downsize like you've only got like two kids you could downsize yeah from this mansion yeah glowing mansion Um, it's ridiculous and uh so he he you've seen this have you i've i started watching it and i thought i i cannot i cannot cope with this allow me rupert (laughs) um so yeah um so yeah and there's a there's a he picks up the he goes in there he has a pee he walks into the 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 guy who owns it rob delaney's old bedroom finds this doll with an upside down face makes a comment on it they kind of bicker he leaves and it turns out the doll's worth like three hundred thousand dollars which would solve all their financial woes and it goes missing and he believes that this kid has nicked it him and his wife then spend the rest of the film trying to break into archie Ates his house of course his parents are away and he sets a load of traps and hilarity ensues um yeah. the, the, it's, it's a bad film it's a bad film and also i i haven't looked at anything damaze has done but Rob Delaney is someone I know the name and I know his face, but he has got comedic timing, right? So in this film, he at least is a man that understands and can make a living out of comedy. Whether I resonate with that comedy or not is kind of irrelevant. He obviously has comedic timing. No one else in this film does, and like I don't want to say too much about it because it's it knocks about you. You get Buzz, the actor who plays um, Buzz. Uh, Kevin's, uh, you know, uh, Macaulay Culkin's brother in the first one making a reappearance, literally referencing Kevin McAllister, and you think, don't do that. Um, there, there are they're like Joe Pesci reenactments in this, similar things. It's, it's really tiresome and lazy, and I, I, and I think the best way I can sum this up, there was a point in this film where I thought something funny was going to happen, and I realised, oh no, it's such a bad film that the way they filmed it. It's 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 very clearly badly filmed and ruined. So yeah. it's easy to do this one when, when you can see me physically. But there's a sequence when uh, Rob Delaney and his wife Ellie Kemper are trying to break into this house by climbing over a high wall to go in there and get this doll back. So they're outside, and the plan is he's gonna like jump up, she'll push him up, and then when he's up like halfway over, he'll pull her up and they'll fall over the wall and break into the house. Mm-hmm. And so she pushes him up. And he he's like scrabbling and his feet kicking. She mistakes as, oh, you want me to climb up you? So she grabs his trousers, pulls them down and just pulls his kegs off. Mm-hmm. And he p- pulls himself up. So he's got one leg on one side, one leg on the other side, one arm on one side, one arm on the other side. And he's like knackered. So he's like in between the wall with his like arms hanging down. And she interprets this as like his arm is hanging down for her to grab it and pull herself up. She jumps up to grab his arm and instead of the film cutting to a side on view and and him her grabbing his arm and him going Whoa, and then no music no, silence like him going Whoa, and then a crunch and then groan which is what would have happened in the original home alone which is why it's so funny because it, all the music drops in those sequences and it's just the nasty noises and yes. the, the, the funny you know vocal interpretations they do yeah. it goes into slow motion and then this swooping camera comes in and he goes, whoa, and she's, ah, and then I thought, oh, you've taken all of the instancy 
and the comedic timing out of this. And that is a yeah. is a classic pratfall. And it, it that summed up the entire film for me. <laughs> it, it's yeah. like you can't even get someone falling off a wall right. So the rest of this film has no hope. And it yeah. doesn't. Dan Mazer, he's worked with Sasha Baron Cohen in the past, but he also directed the film Dirty Grandpa with um <laughs> Robert De Niro. De Niro. So yeah, th- that man's agent needs to brick up his letterbox and just say, oh, nothing, Bob, nothing's come through. Just enjoy your retirement, mate, really. That's what needs to happen now. Archie Yates is in Jojo Rabbit, isn't he? Um, I That's wanted to I watch that because I know Taika Waititi's in it, but mm. Archie Yates, it's a good point you're bringing him up because he strikes me. You know, they make films like um, Absolutely Fabulous or what's the other one? The... Um, Oh, like like the in betweeners, and they make and they they yeah, make a movie, yeah. and 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 it doesn't translate from TV yeah. to a film. Like I mean, I don't even like the TV shows for those. But my point is, he strikes me like watching him in this. Even though I've never seen in my life, I thought you strike me as a TV actor yeah. moving to a movie and acting like it's TV. Yes. Yeah, and I, a part of that I suppose is familiarity. I suppose because he's got English accent, I guess. But yeah. I don't know. I, He's not charming. I mean, Macaulay Culkin, he was, it was clever casting because he was kind of charming, mischievous at the same time. And this kid is not, he just seems like a little oik, doesn't he? Um, Yeah, so probably not worth watching the entire thing. It's It's probably, unless there's a massive leap in quality between three and four and five, I just think one and two, like still, because yeah, like I, it, this this really is like low rent bottom of the barrel comedy. When it's yeah. riffing, when it's riffing off the weakest parts of itself, mm. as a series, you think, yeah, this is done, like really done now. Yeah, it really is. Okay. Yeah, I'll stick to the original and fine with that. Um, okay, I'm gonna talk. Wait, what is it? That's on. Is that Disney Plus? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about a film on Prime called Leave No Trace. And this was, or is, uh, the most reviewed film on Rotten Tomatoes to have a 100% score, which is okay. an interesting factoid. It was Mark Kermode's favourite film. Is this Ben Foster? Yes. Yes, yes. I didn't watch this because I really, really like Ben Foster, but I right. do not like being sad. <laughs> well probably best not to watch this film but it's um it's written and directed by deborah granick and she previously made winter's bone which was the utterly grim film that made jennifer lawrence a star back in 20 let's say 2010 um so anyway leave no trace is about a dad and a daughter who live in a park in portland in oregon uh, they're played by Ben Foster and Thomason McKenzie, most recently seen so in The Witch. Old. Is it? Was yeah, she, she was witch? in the. Yeah. I think she was in The Witch, but she was most recently in Old. And they they live off the land. They're they're subsidised by him selling prescription drugs for veterans, um, and they live a hard but kind of loving life. And the the cops round them up, and social services put them in supported accommodation, but. But it's not the wild, so they kind of break out and go back into the woods. It's it's an interesting dynamic because 
these are people's dad and daughter people they have no interest in leeching off the system but they're constantly forced to live within the system um it becomes apparent that the dad uh, ben foster is a veteran and he's suffering ptsd and his motivation for living in this way is really control because his wife died and and for all his efforts to teach his daughter to live freely in reality he's just massively coddling her and restricting her it's more interesting than a film like nomadland which i talked about previously because there's this relationship between the father and daughter to illuminate everything and and then on top of that you've got the relationship of them to broader society sort of thing i like how it doesn't demonize anyone like social services are actually quite correct in saying that this is no way for a young girl to live and the dad is trying to raise a daughter who doesn't need any social connections whatsoever and then you've got the daughter herself who's like struggling in between these two opposing forces um uh, one of the few criticisms that the film had was that it was meandering and directionless but i think that's why it's such an engaging movie because because we don't know it brings us into the mindset of the daughter especially because we don't know what wild rash decision the dad is going to make next is he just suddenly going to say to her right we're buggering off to alaska on foot off we go sort of thing so i like i like how it paints the average person they meet on the way as decent and com- kind and compassionate which uh, i think is generally true but but then you got this backdrop of this indifferent and savage natural environment which is totally unforgiving um it's just a really good really engaging film and the performances are pretty much perfect so it's very very good and well worth a watch and it's not that sad exactly but it does have its moments <laughs> I think I will watch it because I mean I, I've um, I, I follow it was I think it was Ben Foster in like 2004 was it Murder by Numbers with Sandra Bullock mm. or something like that and yeah um, he elevates everything he's in yeah I mean Warcraft is probably probably the best character in that yeah so and by the way if you're watching this and you left Warcraft as a film any rating lower than a five you're a twat. Because that was absolutely fine, and the reaction that was ridiculous. I watched that, I thought I really enjoyed that, and then I saw the reaction afterwards and said, "Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that's the level we've evolved to as humans." (laughs) But yeah, it was it was really fun, and like you say, I think he was in the remake of um, From Memory, the remake of um, Assault and Precinct 13, and every time he's in something, and he's a mumbler as well. Mm. Um, But yeah, he he really is. He's keen. He is a you know he is keen in what he does. Yeah, he's an absolute pro. I think this I, I might will, be. I think Leave No Trace could be his his signature performance in a way. I think because it's oh wow okay all rests on him. Oh, and his relationship with her, I suppose. I suppose as a it's a double act really, uh, but it's so convincing. And and it is there is it is really sad to see this guy just so broken by his experiences, and yet trying to do the right thing, but just completely having no idea the kind of effect he's having on her is is it the like what he's doing this this adventure he's sort of sending his daughter mm. out on with him is actually just a massive defense mechanism yeah massively yeah like yeah. It, it he's obviously so wounded by i not just his experiences in war but losing his wife that it's 
it's like he's he's making out like he's turning her into a tough young woman but really what he's doing is preventing her from having any kind of will of her own in a way he's in a way he's all right it's like the the living in the wild and that but actually he's really really coddling her and uh protecting her overprotecting her this sounds like a much less knee slappy hunt for the wilder people quite frankly yeah um, yeah, and, no, uh, and as I said, is I would watch this. I'd recommend this over Nomadland any day of the week. Um, and it's I, on Prime. It's on Prime, is it? <sighs> See, I don't have to watch this on, and then Faye's going to come in and say, "Why are you crying?" And then I'll say, "Oh, because <laughs> Rupert lies to me and says it's not as sad as it is." <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 like being a father is like opened um like a, a portal of things. Like I I quite often find myself now on the verge of tears of things that should really be like celebratory. Uh, and, and I don't know. I, I just think that I'm not at the moment in the, in the frame under watch films like that. I think it might just push me over the edge because Christmas are pussies. What I watched that didn't make me cry was LA confidential, which I know is one of your brother, Max strengths, favorite films. <laughs> and, good. Um, I mentioned to the point that I said to him, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I watched LA confidential and he literally said, careful, I like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So before you say anything critical about it. Yeah. Um, but no, it, it, it's a film I've watched many times. It's 1997. Um, the screenplay by Brian Helgeland. And that name really rings a bell as I look at it on um, Wikipedia. I actually know that I see that. What's he done? Like Renelm Street 4, Dream Master, LA Confidential. Conspiracy Theory, all good films. The payback, totally fine. Yeah, yeah, all good. Um, the uh, do he did that one with um, Tom Hardy, didn't he? Am I thinking of the right thing? The one with uh, about what their names? The British twin gangsters. Craze, legend? the craze, legend, the craze. Yeah, he oh, did that, okay. didn't he? I think. Oh, I'm not sure, but, but um, yeah. yeah, I think so. Um, but LA Confidential, um, it's another, it's kind of like, uh, we've talked about this before with, um, like the game, it's a very rewatchable film because there's a lot to drink in every scene. It's not even that evocative of the 1950s, really. It's just so stylish and there's something about like the dialogue and the, 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 the scenes that feels really compact and and I think that as you watch the film, you've obviously got all these huge names in it, like uh, Kim Basinger, Guy Pearce, Russell Crowe, Kevin Spacey, Danny DeVito, J- James Cromwell, good. Um, but and you've got all these sort of threads, and it's really it's really satisfying to see them all come together. And ultimately, it's a pretty basic story of just like LA police corruption, like like Dark Blue, for example. But against this, you know. Uh, this this gritty um, city setting. There's something really Moorish about it, and I don't know if it's it's obviously a combination of like the, the sort of um, light jazz music, the performances, the way it's filmed. But every character feels really strong and really richly drawn, and there's just 
something compulsive about it. And even when you, because the last time I saw it, I kind of forgot the, um, the the story beats, and I found myself getting sucked in again. And in the same way, uh, another Russell Crowe film was like with the Nice Guys, where even if you know the beats of the plot, with, whereas with that's a comedy, with this it's more of a noir sort of um, thriller. There's so much here to just focus on, and I can imagine that someone would watch this and say, "Oh, you know, if you if you look in the background, you'll see this, 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 and this, or if you listen to the music, you'll get this." Me, I watch it and I just think, I just love the mood of this. Mm. There's just something about the mood that's really sucking me in. So yeah, LA Confidential, I think, is a film much like the game that I will return to just constantly until I blow my brains out. It is very, very rewatchable. Like every scene seems, it seems really significant. It's one of those sorts of films. Significant, like, that's a good word, yeah. Yeah, and um, I guess it's just good writing, really. But yeah, it, it seems every scene seems significant, and it and it really captures that feeling of the the old Hollywood of like real glamour on the surface and horrendous violence just just beneath the surface so there's a real tension in the i think scene. i think as well it's one of those things like with w- watching this like i said there's so many there's so many big names in it so many capable actors and when you watch it when it when it's sort of just you know just introduce you to the characters at the start and you've got danny DeVito with the hush hush magazine uh, like the national Enquirer sort of thing and kim bassinger is this as this um this prostitute and then kevin spacey is this guy who works in the tv show and you almost think this is all so interesting i kind of don't care which direction the film pulls me off on like if this film just follows Mm. any of these characters i'm willing to do it i'm willing like it almost feels like this could be a tv series and just follow each character for an arc for a series It, it really does feel like that and yet it manages to do it in a film that is how long like just over two hours and still feel like, oh, no, I, I could go back to that and just really keep exploring that world. Yeah. Um, it's a really great film. Really great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. And it, uh, I've watched it many, many times. Um, who was the director? It's the guy who made 8 Mile as well. What's his name? Curtis Hansen. He's dead now, isn't he? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. If, um, if, if, I remember when I was watching it, I was reading about Curtis Hansen and he had a bit of a weird filmography let me just quickly pop it up for a sec it was weird I don't think he never made anything that came close to LA Confidential quality I don't think no looking at no looking at this like Lucky You The Big Year which was that film with like um, Owen Wilson wasn't it I remember that mm. uh, Steve Martin um, oh he did The River Wild come on or The Hand of Rocks and Cradle yeah it's, it's weird it's like it's like darkness is where his talents lie and yeah. then he moved away from them after LA Confidential. Oh, he did do the Wonder Years, which I know was was a big one. It's not a film I've seen, but yeah, not not the Wonder Years of Fred Savage. No, are you 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 tired? Look at you. Okay. Well, I'm a father of a <laughs> 15 month baby. <laughs> yes, I'm always tired. Um, so, okay, um, moving on, which is quite a serious episode, actually, because I'm now going to talk about The Killing Fields, <laughs> which is on Prime, um, which was made in 1984 um, by Roland Joffe, who uh, 
He's a good director. He made The Mission as well, which is excellent. And weirdly, for such a serious film, is this was written by Bruce Robinson, who made With Lail and I. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. But yes, this was I'm quite... I'm diary. I guess. Uh, this was quite a formative piece of filmmaking for me, because I watched it a lot in my youth without really knowing the greater context of the events in Cambodia when the Vietnam conflict basically spilled over the border and there was this big civil war basically between Cambodian army and this Khmer Rouge which is this horrible regime run by Pol Pot which killed thousands and thousands of civilians millions maybe um I still don't actually know the context really, but I still think this is a great film. It's the true story of, of this New York Times journalist called Sidney Schamberg, who's played by Sam Waterston here, father of Catherine Waterston from Alien Covenant, um, and looks remarkably like her. Uh, and it's, yeah, so this journalist, and his, and really it's about his relationship with this guy, uh, his translator, interpreter, Dith Pran. Um it's set in 1975. Basically, they're in Cambodia when the US conducts a secret bombing campaign, which kills a bunch of civilians and the US covers it up. And Sydney and his interpreter, they, they want to reveal the truth, basically. Um, however, then Sydney and his American compatriots, including John Malkovich playing a photographer, um, they're pulled out um, of the country because it's obviously becoming too dangerous. It's a film of three parts, basically. There's the chaos in Cambodia and all of its sudden kind of spasms of violence. Then there's the attempt to bring Dith Pran with them by forging a passport. And finally, there's Pran's fate in the work camps of Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge leader, um, as they're forced to leave him behind. So um, Dith Pran is played by um, a man called Hang Ngo. I don't know whether that's the right pronunciation, but there you go. He won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for this role, right, uh, in 1985. Now, mm -hmm. consider that this was his first acting role as well. That's pretty <laughs> amazing in itself. Yeah. And then you have to consider that in real life, um, Ngo, he had survived in real life, three terms in Cambodian prison camps and actually did make the escape out of the Khmer Rouge territory um, to a Red Cross camp across the border, eating scorpions along the way to survive. is just an incredible story. So he actually did the stuff that he portrays in this film, which is incredible. Um, I think just to get the film's flaws out of the way, they're really with the music, I would say, Mike Oldfield does the score and it's, it's a synth score, which is really jarring uh, and obnoxious. And it's scattered with this orchestral score, which is by a completely different composer. And then all of that is mixed in with uh, inserts for of <clears throat> like existing music. Like you get Puccini's Ness and Dorma, which you know if you heard it, and John Lennon's Imagine rocks up in there so it's either really horribly on the nose or unsubtle or it's just bad synth work which really dates the movie but everywhere else i think the craft is just amazing in this film like the editing has to be seen to be believed that like the framing the sound design the use of deep space uh, within the frame filling the frame front to back giving a sense of life and chaos in this completely 
decimated country it's just incredible and it's all pre-cg obviously so you know those you know we're, we're really seeing real crowds we're seeing real destruction and and I, I suppose nowadays the sense of guilt like watching it now the sense of guilt that the americans felt at basically ruining a country and then pulling out pulling all their people out it's really kind of shines through and it's weirdly relevant given the situation like afghanistan for example the way like so many allies have been left behind to this horrendous regime in fact it feels identical like the tension when Dithpran is trying to survive in the aftermath um you know like and the regime is saying obviously if they find out he was allied with the us and he was an interpreter he'd just be dead instantly so he pretends he's a taxi driver and stuff and he just uses his wits to get away with it and it's just a it's a really intelligent and worthwhile film <clears throat> and pretty fair in its apportioning of blame for horrors on the ground and it's made with real care and and a sense of scope which is unusual for what is a british movie basically uh yeah and yeah it's it's definitely worth watching it definitely holds up um i was wondering whether i'd still like it as much as i did when in my youth but i do it's very good roland joffey good director he was a good director uh when he had a bit of money behind him also worth watching is the mission with robert De Niro and jeremy irons but yeah killing fields is very good i've never heard of that when, when was the mission made I think it was made a, maybe a couple of years afterwards, maybe 86, so, I want to say. So Roland Joffe then, when you said when he had a bit of money behind him, is he of, of things taken a turn? Well, the only thing <clears throat> I've seen of his more recently was um, it's a film called Captivity. I don't know if you saw this one. Um, I'm clicking on it. Yeah. I, it's probably, Torture porn. Well, he, yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't remember much about it. I don't remember it being, I don't remember thinking this is torture porn, but if, maybe maybe I was just completely, uh, I was completely like, um, my brain had been dulled to the whole concept of torture porn, but then I don't know. But yeah, um, I remember it just being, it wasn't that it was a particularly bad film. It was just a bit depressingly mediocre. And I thought, and I remember seeing Roland Joffe's name come up and I thought, hang about, didn't you make, you made like The Killing Fields and The Mission and The Scarlet Letter in the 80s and 90s. These were good films with scope and character and intelligence, but so it was a little bit depressing. Looking at his, um, with the last few films, 2017, The Forgiven with... Uh, Forrest Whitaker, Eric Banner. Eric Banner is surprisingly reliable, by the way, in films. I know. Uh, the, lo- I know. The, the, the Lovers with um, jo- Josh Hartnett and Townsend Edgerton, mm-hmm. There Be Dragons with... Uh, Sp- oh, set during the Spanish Civil War in the 30s. Okay. The, the films... I don't know. I mean, it, it, it makes me want to watch them. I... I interested to revisit his newest stuff and see what see what he's doing when you said he used to be good i assumed he he died but look at it it's like he seems to still be making epics oh well good i mean i i didn't know anything about his more recent output like as i said the last thing i saw was captivity and that was so small scale 
kind of grubby little horror film and thought oh, okay yeah maybe that maybe that put the, the foot in it for you but then yeah because mm. i will say that it just describes it as torture porn uh written by larry cohen and larry cohen is a name i'm familiar with he did um Ah, oh, sorry. Quick look at his work, so I can. I wouldn't mind seeing his filmography. Didn't he write? He did the stuff back in the day. Yeah, yeah, the stuff. Maniac Cop, Maniac Cop Two, uh-huh. Phone Booth Cellular. So, yeah, it's a oh, cellular. cellular. That film, film is so one. It's so wonderfully dated. Um, <laughs> it's probably the most perfectly dated film of the nineties. It is. It's, it's, it's literally in such a specific happen. time in yeah, history. So good. I love that shit. Um. So yeah, Roland Joffe could be one to you should re- revisit him. I reckon for the next. I episode. think maybe I should. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it was it was just uh, yeah, it's unusual to see British films, especially with that sense of scope to them. They tend to be much smaller scale these days. I well, because you talked about the Killing Fields, I'm going to talk about something um, a little bit more upbeat. I'm going to talk about something on Netflix called <sighs> Father Christmas is back. Um, <laughs> Which is directed by two people somehow. Maybe the camera was heavy. And it stars. No, no, it's it's just wow. it's, <laughs> the joke group is, is that um, like Kelsey Grammer is 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 called like Mr. Christmas, and he's a father who has neglected mm. his family, and now he's come back to to reinsert himself in the family way for Christmas. So obviously, like Elizabeth Hurley's called Joanna Christmas. John Cleese is John Christmas. So. Oof. Anyway, what's relation? What relation is Cleese to him? Then is he Kelsey Grammer's brother or something? I'm well, thinking about it. The, Caroline Quentin is a woman called Elizabeth Christmas in this, and from watching it, as I was supposed to be working over my shoulder, I assumed that Kelsey Grammer was her original husband who moved away to Florida from England, and John Cleese is a new husband. That's how it's painted. Right. Unless it's supposed to be her brother, but yeah, it, it, yeah, it's there are a lot of problems, with it, like very strange problems with this. What should be a pretty straightforward, generic family soppy Christmas film, right? One is that John Cleese should know better because he is kind of, you know, he's so, such a so again such a tentpole of British comedy of like the the seventies and sixties. And he's in this, and you think, do you? This is terrible, John. This is like straight to TV tosh. Um, mm. So the plot, such as it is, is that uh, they all this this family, or the surname is Christmas. They all gather in this huge mansion in like bloody Kent or something, and every year, and they all don't get on. And it's all with the bickering fest, and they all hate each other. They're all different. The youngest one is a slut. Elizabeth Hurley is just a, like a uh, is a fashion designer and refuses to admit her age in her mid forties, telling everyone she's in her mid thirties. John Cleese just sits around drinking, and and this weird ongoing joke about Caroline Quentin as like the the matriarch of the family, just having early onset Alzheimer's, and just is totally played for laughs and never addressed. She's just wandering around doing something odd, and they say, "What are you doing?" And she's like, "Oh," ha, ha, ha. or she's in a nightdress and her dress is caught in a door, and she is like constantly walking forward and stuck in a doorway. Ha, 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 ha. So Jesus, it's low, it's low rent stuff. Um, so the the plot is then that Kelsey Grammer, who 
left Apple left the family 27 years ago. Kelsey Grammer, who was in his mid to late 60s, left the family 27 years ago, moved to Florida, and has now come back with his like 35 year old girlfriend to try and reconnect with his daughters. And the whole film is they are stunned. They are stunned that he comes back and they cannot believe that he's there. Like, why would you come back? You know, we're all adults. Why would you try to reconnect with us? And the whole film is jokes on the level of, uh, I don't know, like the, the host of the family saying, um, okay, you know, this is this is the food you're having and it's like a load of salad. And if you don't like it, you can go to the plow in down the road, the pub. And then Elizabeth Hill will lean over to her sister and say, oh, you like a good plow wing, don't you? And the, that is the level we're mm-hmm. working at here, right? The, the real basic stuff. And so this goes on, like these like really weak TV jokes. And then when Kelsey Grammer comes back, they all hate him. And he tries to kind of win the love over the family. And there's two things that struck me with this. One is that Kelsey Grammer wins the love of the family back, spoiler alert, for Father Christmas is back, by telling them that he sent over loads of money on the shush. And that that is enough for them to wipe out a quarter of a century of neglect. <laughs> and they completely fall in love with him and like really like like bring him back into their lives. Secondly, is just the maths of the ages of the characters don't add up. Mm. So so Kelsey Grammer says, I know I've been gone for 27 years. I just wasn't ready to be a father. Kelsey Grammer in this, like John Cleese is made out to be younger than he is, and Kelsey Grammer is made out to be about as old as he is, so like mid-60s. Right. So you think, right, you left 27 years ago, say you're 65. So you left when you you were like in your early to mid-40s. Uh, Elizabeth Hurley is stated clearly to be 45. She claims to be 35, and her youngest, the younger sister says, oh, younger than me, that's impressive. So say she's 36. So basically... He is saying that he left when the youngest daughter was like in her mid teens and his oldest daughter was in her 20s. And you think this whole setup wouldn't work unless you were a young father. Yeah. And there was like yeah. one or two kids. But these are kids spread over like 15, 20 years apart. <laughs> so you're telling me that you waited until your youngest daughter was in her early 20s and said, I can't be a dad. Yeah. And then. Is the hard bit would probably be done by then? You would have thought. It's like... I can, I can certainly tell you the hard bit would be done by then. <laughs> but, but also, um, there's a bit. Bear in mind that Kelsey Grammer would have moved from London to America when he's in his early to mid forties. When the when he comes back and he opens and walks in and says, you know, I'm back. John Cleese says, Oh, I see you've lost your accent. And I thought, I what? don't think your, I don't think your accent changes that much in your mid forties. <laughs> No, it really, really wouldn't. Like, I mean, I suppose he's got quite, he can put on quite a posh American accent, but still. Mid-Atlantic. But yeah, I think the thing is, that whole thing, everything about it is, everything doesn't, every joke, every statement doesn't stand up beyond a second's worth of thought. There's a bit where Elizabeth Hurley's boyfriend um, has like a Rolls Royce. And he wakes up in the morning and they, they say, oh, we're going out to the village fate and there's a prize. And the younger sister has, has put the Rolls Royce up as a prize. And the joke is that he stands there all day with his credit card trying to win his own car back. And I thought, 
all he'd have to do is just put his keys in the ignition and drive it away and mm. say, you've stolen my car. But it's it's played for these like ridiculously drawn up, tedious laughs. So it's not even a sloppy Christmas comedy for which I'm not the target audience. It's extremely lazy and extremely embarrassing for everyone involved. Oh, dear. And that's on Netflix. Well, I don't really like Christmas movies anyway, so <laughs> um, this is not really uh, Pop, you're a trumpet. Really, no, it hasn't really convinced me. Um, I like, by the way, this episode, and I do apologise, how you're constantly yawning at the microphone and I'm struggling to speak. So this must be fantastic to listen back I to. I know. And it's all, it's all uh, our son's fault as well, in their own way. <laughs> so this, this is the reality. This is the horrendous reality. Yeah. Um, and yet, um, and yet we push on. Um, this is why my dad used to say, oh, don't have kids. Just look at drawings you've done of other people's. <laughs> drawings or watercolours? Um, right. <laughs> Acrylics. <laughs> Acrylics of other people's children was probably Pink Floyd's best EP, to be honest. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about In Fabric, which I watched on Rakuten, the worst streaming service. This cold is making you sound like Sid James now when you laugh. Right. Um, <laughs> this is a sequel to a film that we really like. That, or like a, a, a direct a follow-up. Um, Peter who? Strickland, who made the Barbarian Sound Studio, he uh, yeah. made. I, yes, this. I see this film. I'm looking forward to yeah, hearing what you say. So, in this, uh, a middle-aged uh, bank clerk. Um, played by Marianne Jean Baptiste, um, she buys this beautiful red dress from a very strange and evocative department store, and things start getting very weird. Uh, it seems that the dress may be haunted or possibly have a life of its own. It will move on its own, for example, and repair itself. And I found it quite funny actually. These uh, scenes, like this mysterious, like over elegant shop assistant who speaks in riddles um and <laughs> marion john baptiste character like her she wears this red dress on like a really unromantic date where the first thing that the, her date does is hand her these love vouchers for 10 percent off the food which i found quite funny um gwendolyn christie plays um this girlfriend of uh Marion Jean Baptiste's uh, son um who warns her about uh, uh, like because Marion Jean Baptiste is getting this um rash this horrible rash off the dress and Gwendolyn Christie's character warns her about a college uh, about a colleague who got this rash and ended up with his arm <laughs> amputated but it's all right because he learned to write left-handed and stuff I, it, I love all that kind of dark humor stuff it's very amusing um there's and there's something quite poignant about this nice older lady who just wants to feel desirable by wearing something nice but everyone's just walking all over her and i love the constant juxtaposition between this the highly kind of 
affected decadent sense of mystery surrounding the department store and the really grim working class home life of uh, Marion Jean-Baptiste's character um it will like it like jump cut between some grand ritual like product launch at the store straight into her dingy kitchen in East London or whatever um it's got this really amazingly unsettling sound design um like this one scene where uh, Peter Strickland uses the like the rising sound of the washing machine stirring up uh, to create really really unbearable tension. It's really cool. These it's got a really good synth score by um, the Cavern of Antimatter, who are uh, a good, good, quite psychedelic outfit. Um, it's pretty slow burning, but it's so unpredictable. That it's not boring. I wouldn't say. It's just a cacophony of ideas, really, vaguely connected. I don't know what any of it all means. However, there is a big problem with the film. Or oh, I okay. found there's a big problem with the film. And it was it's the decision to split the film into two. And basically halfway through, we're suddenly focusing on a completely different set of characters. And it really knocks the wind out of it. And it's another quite funny story about, like, a... Um, like a wash I don't know he's a washing machine repairman um but it's not nearly as emotionally engaging as the Marion John Baptiste story and it and it abandons a bunch of characters who've been built up for an hour um and it does get a bit repetitive and I th- I, I thought it was just a, a bad decision to essentially you re- really just tell very much the same story with a different set of characters but are completely unconnected to the first set of characters so i would say it was recommended up to a point and it is it is very original i'd say but i found it quite frustrating in its narrative structure and certainly not as single-minded and coherent as barbarian sound studio which which i found funny all the way through this i thought was great up to a point but it it really outstays its welcome through repetition more than anything. So it was a bit disappointing that I found. I I, I had a really different experience to you because like the Beer and Sound Studio you you suggested to me literally like seven or eight years ago and then I, one night I was there and I had a bottle of wine I thought oh I'll check the Beer and Sound Studio on and it's so dark that I just found myself laughing at the ridiculousness yeah. of Toby Jones and the situation he's in. And like when he's just listening to these constant screams and of course you never see the movie. And then by the end of it, when he's walking around talking to Tally and I was just thinking, this is so brilliant. This is just, it, it felt almost like, um, like computer chess where it's mm. such an idiosyncratic movie that you just, you lock with it or you don't mm. with this, this film um, within fabric about two years, two or three years ago, I walked into our bedroom um, and it must have been when we were doing lockdown because I was working from home and I finished work, walked in the bedroom and I walked in and Faye was already looking at the doorway as I walked in and she was frowning. And I said, <laughs> what's wrong? She said, I'm just watching this film. It's called In Fabric. And I looked at the screen and I I said, oh, what is it? Because Faye's way of kind of zoning out is to watch stuff like Selling Sunset or like really background stuff that's kind of mm-hmm. who we were zoning out and, and chilling out and i said well, what is it i said this was really odd actually and it kicked in for me at the part where the, the washing machine repairment uh-huh. and i re- and I, re- I can't remember the jokes 
But I remember within a minute from saying, what, what's this? Being on my, like leaning on my knuckles on the bed, laughing until I was coughing. And, th- and, and then I was like completely enraptured to the end of the film thinking, this is, this is brilliant. This is like, um, you know, this is, this is, this is just bonkers stuff. Mm-hmm. But, I've never seen that first half, and it's really interesting uh. you should say that. I, I walked in at the point and got totally like enraptured by it. I never got around to watching the whole thing, so... Yeah, I can imagine that's... that. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine if you watch just the, that storyline, then it probably would be really good, because that's what you know of the film. But watching it in succession in the way I did, where it builds up these other characters... And then suddenly just switches to another set of characters. That was frustrating to me. And it, it felt like it, it meant the film went from <coughs> being really engaging, slow but engaging, to slow and, oh, oh it's almost like I've got to do this again, sort of thing. So, Build yeah. Scratch again, okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, Peter Strickland's such an interesting director. Though. Like, I mean, I've watched anything he makes and. Even if I didn't particularly enjoy the structure of this, the 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 dark humor is so funny. Like, because I think with the um with the washing machine repairman, doesn't he start like making like these? He he can like um hypnotize people by just basically reading. Um, it's almost like the he's ma- reading like a manual. Yeah. Manual, like so, he'll go into like loads of detail about the inner mechanics of um of a washing machine and people just suddenly like their their jaws will drop and they'll just stare blankly into the middle distance yeah that was like orgasmic noises and he's just (laughs) and then the third note is it and he's just listing off this like really oh uh uh it was i just thought this is this is so up my street but again i didn't see the first 45 minutes so yeah Mm. it would be interesting to watch the whole thing again i don't know when i'll be in the mood to sit down and do that though is the problem yeah it is definitely, yeah, it's not the kind of thing you just chuck on in the background. What film am I thinking of? Because I keep on mistaking Peter Strickland, sorry, I'm going to cough. <coughs> For that character, what was, there was a first film and the second film this other director did where it was called like Upstream Colour or something like that. Oh, Shane Carruth. Is that his name? And was the, was the first film he did, was it Primer? Yeah. That oh, was right, a yeah. very, very strange film. Yeah, I, I haven't seen I love- Upstream Colour yet. I love Primer, but I've yeah. never seen it from Kel. I feel like I should. Do you know what he's done since? No. I mean, I think he's an actor as well, so I guess he's in stuff. I'm going to look into them. Well, I'm going to move more into the mainstream now. I'm going to talk about Gangster Squad, um, as long as my voice holds out. And okay. I obviously, after, wa- after watching LA Confidential, I thought, well, you know, I, I want more of that noir, I want more LA, I want the magic. And Gangster's World came up, and I realised that I fancy Josh Brolin. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll watch this, this is fine. And it's just a bit of a two-minute, really, because what I found was, um, in my head, I'd mixed this up with Mulholland Falls, with Nick Nolte, because nice. Nick Nolte's in this as well, as, as a, as a uh, captain. And... Gangster Squad 2007 available on Amazon Prime is a, is a is a good film and it's got all of the ingredients you want but you know I remember watching and I think your brother um Max Volley mentioned this recently um Black mm. Mass Oh yeah and, and I like I don't watch gangster films that much as you know so 
I, when I watched Black Mass, I thought I really enjoyed that. And then I, from conversations with a few of the people, it was just, oh, they're really de- derivative of this film, this film, this film. And I thought, well, I've never seen them. So to me, it was just like, I just enjoyed it's it. Blazingly original to you. Yeah. <laughs> then with Gangster Squad, because I've seen Mulholland Falls and because, which uh, is literally about the same thing. And I've seen a few other films like this. Untouchables so I thought, and stuff, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I thought this does feel derivative of the genre. But packed with characters and specifically actors that I really like. Nick yeah. Nolte, Josh Brolin, Ryan Gosling, Sean Penn, Robert Patrick, Michael Peña, Giovanna Ribisi, they're all actors that I'm completely on board with. So I kind of went with it. But by the time it ended, I thought I enjoyed that, but on an absolutely superficial level. Uh, and, and there's something in this film, and you, you'll, you'll, you'll click with this more than I did. There's something about Sean Penn's performance that feels above everything else, really, caricaturish there's mm. something about every time he's on screen i just thought i kind of feel like you're almost in a different film and taking the piss a bit mm. it's really odd but it did start me off with a josh brolin uh love affair which will lead to my next films which are all marvel films rupert ah. i did i finally took that leap wow okay yeah uh so i'm interested to if you want to keep going down the kind of like 40s, 50s gangster route, I suppose the obvious choice next would be Dick Tracy with Warren Beatty. <laughs> From 1990. Um, That's a weird yeah, well, film. Well, I remember the game, the games on the, on the NES, the Mega Drive game is really good. I, apart so from the level How oh, dare you? Yeah, there's a level you haven't got any bullets, you've got to punch over in the tech. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so... Do you, I've got, like I said, I'm going to do my next three films, which are all Marvel films in one go. Oh, okay. But I, I'll happily let you step in. Well, I'll quickly talk about uh, Pulse then, um, which... Which, which Clifty Young or the Tokyo one? Yeah, Pulse, not that one. It's the one with Clifty Young from 1988. <laughs> Clifty Young, or as I would call him, the council estate Bruce Dern. He is, uh, he stars <laughs> as the father and Roxanne Hart as his wife. And... Cliff's estranged son comes to stay, um, and soon after he comes to stay, a mysterious tragedy occurs across the street. So this kid, the son, he struggles to find friends, but he he does befriend a younger kid who tells him the gory details of what happened to the family across the street. Um, And inevitably, Cliff the young son sneaks into the house and meets this uh, crazy guy who talks about the voice in the wires. So... Soon after, that, Green. <laughs> soon after that, an electrical pulse enters Cliff de Young's house and starts freaking with the electrics. And suddenly appliances seem to have a life of their own and most sinisterly the TV. Um, so the son is convinced that of what's happened. But of course, Cliff de Young doesn't believe him. But as his dad, he also doesn't want... He doesn't want to disbelieve his son because he doesn't want to push the kid away because, you know, he wants to rekindle his relationship with his son. Um, it isn't a very visceral horror. It's just heavy on characterization and family dynamics and mood building and tension. But the electricity mayhem scenes are surprisingly effective and inventive. There's there's this one great scene where the kid is trapped in the garage with a gas leak and he has to smash his way out with the car um and it's got these 
it's got these like ultra close up tracking shots through microelectronics, uh, which I thought was quite ahead of his time. And of course, it wouldn't have been CG. So they're quite cleverly done. They must have been done with models. Um, and I think the reason it works anyway, this film is because of its m- mundanity, like the stuff that happens uh, are just extreme versions of what could happen in a regular home. Like, well, like the, a shower getting locked shut and getting blisters. exactly the yeah. shower getting really like locking shut and getting super hot and melting someone's skin. So it's horribly relatable and stuff. And and it also works because it's a solid family drama about this father and son trying to build this relationship. And and it, it key to it to the writing is the adults are believable adults and the kids are believable kids. So that helps a lot. And it has a really genuinely exciting final sequence. It's it's just a classy and well-crafted, um, sometimes quite stylish film. And I enjoyed it a lot. I liked it. Is it, is it Cliff De Young's best? Probably. I mean, yeah. It's, it's up there with Flight of the Navigator anyway. <laughs> I, on the subject of Pulse, because I, I watched that film, really liked it. Pulse, not that one. The the film set in japan i realized that like um the problem with with films like palson or that one you know where the people keep disappearing it's a great film i think the problem i had as a teenager was everyone who was into anime and japanese horror thrillers was really tedious and you know when (laughs) someone sort of says oh yeah oh the best films are swedish dramas and you mm-hmm. think are they are they are i think they now it's, you're it's just a more thrilling film, but you're just saying it and i think i fell into that trap of just being really dismissive because i thought are you one of those oh yeah the band's first album is probably their unreleased demo everything since they've sold out and i and I, I just thought i can't be bothered for this i'll go back to washington but i don't repeat thank you very much so i think it, it is interesting to like with my recent forays into korean and japanese cinema to I do need to watch Pulse again because I remember watching that one night when I was a teenager and it really passed not that one without Clifty Young and it really af- affected me and I thought well right. this is this is a this is a cinematic mood that I've not yet been exposed to and so well, I, do I, I think as well you got to remember when when like Japanese horror J horror was at its peak was at the same well, it was the early 2000s really and now late 90s early 2000s which happened to be the moment when u.s horror was at its yeah. lowest ebb really wasn't it like u.s horror was so brash and loud and flashy and over stylized and then you had these weird dark slow grim genuinely tension-filled horror movies coming out of japan like ring and its sequels and grudge and stuff like that um which was so totally different i think now you look at like a lot of the horror coming out of the us now it's much closer to what japanese were doing around that time so it's not quite as as bad but i can understand why as if i had been a horror fan at that time i probably would have been more inclined towards foreign language horror i would imagine yeah absolutely because because i dismissed um eastern movies for that reason i just thought oh, it just seems like everyone everyone other likes them is just a bit of a tosser yeah, it's exactly. like i miss i missed out on a lot um 
uh, so yeah, I, I feel like the, the, there's a lot from around that time that I need to revisit. Mm-hmm. Really quickly, then I'm just going to go through three Marvel films of that. Sure, sure. Uh, because I'm not going to go to the plots and stuff because I'm assuming that because everyone because else has already seen them. Yeah, because these are the biggest films of the last five years. Everyone's going to know much more about about them than myself. So what I'm was I like every Friday me and my son my son and I we sit there and I just check on stuff in the background usually it's kid stuff and I thought well I can put on Marvel things they're not going to offend anyone they're designed not to offend anyone in fact <laughs> so I popped on and and the, and the one that I thought that um on that Monday uh my fiance's brother had said the best Marvel film for me the one I keep returning to is Thor Ragnarok and I said well mm-hmm. I'll check it on and I put it on and I like Guardians of the Galaxy, and as you as as you know, I, I'm a fan of Black Widow, and I liked Ant Man because I liked how standalone they were and how small in scope they felt. Uh, that's not a pun on Ant Man, by the way. So I put Thor Ragnarok on, and instantly, because they referenced um, World War Hulk, which is a comic series from Incredible Hulk, I was like, oh, that's quite cool. And then, and I watched it, and then you know, you get you you get the Hulk stuff. Uh, you got Carl Urban in there, good. Carl Urban's character arc, my God, they were lazy with that. They, they, there was no effort in Carl Urban's Scourge's character arc. Jesus Christ! The second he turned him on screen, you can say, "Right, pause." I'll tell you what happens to him. Um, and yeah, and, and I was watching it, and you've, it's weird because you've got people like Kate Blanchett and stuff, and Idris Elba again, totally pushed to the side when he should clearly be a main player in this whole franchise. Mm-hmm. But. I find it funny because I like from Hunt for the Wilder People. I like Taika Waititi's Waititi Taika Waititi's humor, and I'm so familiar with the characters. And I happened to follow across that uh, World War Hulk series of comics that I I happened to really like with Korg. Obviously, totally different to the comics, but was totally going along with it. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this lighter side because. What gets on my nerves with Marvel? Well, I wouldn't say get on my nerves. What I find so dismissive of them is everything is this intergalactic conceit. Everything is so full on and just so multi-universe threatening. It's like, I can't relate to any of this. Just like, please. But because this was just like what you saw on this dodgy planet, use a few laughs. I was totally on board with it. And, I'd, you know, I, I found I never laughed out loud, but I found it mildly amusing. Mm-hmm. And I it could and that film finished and I thought I enjoyed that of course that film finished with the the hint the inevitable mid credit scene for Avengers Infinity War and I thought well I've just watched Black Widow and I like that so in for a penny in for a pound I'll check that on straight away again and bear in mind I watched these films straight after each other it's like nine hours boom 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 uh, so I was totally in there with the narrative and it started off Boom, it's Josh Brolin. I've just watched you in Gangster Squad. I fancy you. You're in the bar. You're cleaning glasses, baby. Here we go. And I was watching it and I thought, yeah, yeah, I quite like this actually. It's, you know, it's got a huge cast of characters. It all holds together quite well. Every time Chadwick Boseman came on screen, I felt a bit of a pang in my chest because mm. I thought that's deeply, deeply, and deeply unfair what happened to you. It was yes. that. And like I said, anything that upsets me, like, before now as a father really almost brings him to my knees so Chadwick Boseman came on the screen I was almost filling up and I thought oh, right don't cry Brit this is a Marvel film it's like 11 in the morning so I'm watching the film and I'm having a good time and I, I really like Mark Ruffalo 
it's going on and you know the stealing thanos is, wants to be a tinker they're trying to stop and get this glove and i, I i'm hip steep all in all in all in all in the whole thing about clicking the fingers is ridiculous like because it's in the it's comics so it's like why, why do they need to click why does he need to click his fingers it's funny <laughs> stuff like so that goes on enjoying it having a good time and then i watched avengers endgame and i realized what the problem with marvel was and it's that it's it requires you beyond superficial laughter and a familiarity with the characters and nostalgia for the comics they're riffing off for their plot lines. It requires at its heart at end game, the thing that draws people in emotional engagement. And I do not have that. I, that's the one thing I do not have with the series. I want to be lightly entertained. And I, I want to have a few laughs and I want to think, oh, I remember that. Oh, that's cool. I've read the comics. I see what you're doing. That's all good stuff. When you want me to care about anyone, you're doomed because everyone is too snarky and too superficial for me to really get involved with. Mm. So, and the fact that this film is a three hour drudge of people's eyes filling with tears and looking at shields and looking at the stars and remember lost ones. I thought I'm bored now. Yes, this is a film that I can imagine would be like for a lot of people would be the culmination of 13 years worth of of movies, which is an impressive feat. Don't get me Mm -hmm. wrong. That is like if you're if you're hips deep in this, I can imagine this is like, wow, this is all built up to this. I'm so involved. I'm so overawed and just soaring with every violin rhythm. But if you're like me and you're just there because you kind of think, oh, I'm having fun. This is not fun. And I found myself for vast swathes of this bored, actually bored. And and I found Tony Stark a twat, <laughs> like an irritating twat, because his whole cheeky chappy, I've come back from the dead thing that he's still doing in this. It doesn't stand up to close scrutiny because mm. if he if he was a caring father, it would be like no. But the way that they write this doesn't really doesn't ring true, and the way that they think Tony Stark is the only person in the world that can solve this problem doesn't ring true. And the way that they see Mark Ruffalo and he's suddenly like both Hulks at once, it just smacks of someone saying, "Oh, that would be funny." But in the middle of a deeply unfunny film, it's especially poignantly unfunny. Mm. So I found that game like a, a real slog. Yeah. 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 I, it's weird. I like. Were there two Infinity War films, or am I just imagining that? There, there was Infinity War and then Avengers Endgame. Okay. Right. Yeah, I yeah, it all kind of goes into it. I mean, I remember being quite impressed by them at the time, but then all of the scenes and stuff kind of turned into a mush in my brain. It doesn't really have any resonance as such, but I think that's to do with what you were talking about, like the unrelatability of it all. For me, it's slightly different. It's more I have no familiarity with the comic book characters, but that doesn't shouldn't oh, matter if I'm watching a movie. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's it's the sheer number of characters, and I think it's impressive that they managed to balance them out 
and give yeah, them all that, something that to is do. Impressive. I but think when it gets... at the same time, it also means you can't really. I never felt myself getting particularly attached or carried along by any particular story because they had so much to deal with. Like, and I mean, I know the films are like three hours long. These ensemble films are like three hours long, but even that's not enough, really, is it? For this, the number, sheer number of characters that they're trying to deal with, they're, they're trying to finish off in, in terms of their arcs and stuff. So, yeah. I, I think when it gets to the point in Endgame, when when someone literally walks on screen or comes out of a portal and you're supposed to inhale in awe and you don't, yeah. that, that's when it loses you for me because I just thought... I just want this to be done, really. I, yeah, I, I, it, I, I, it, it descends into a series of emotional money shots, essentially, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really does. And because like, there's a whole sequence when you've got, um, like, uh, Scarlett Johansson, Jeremy Renner. Um, and Jeremy Renner's clearly at his best in something like Wind River. Mm. And, 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 like, see, seeing... Underplaying. Seeing his, yeah, seeing him in, in, in the, uh, the, the Marvel films years ago, and then watching like Wind River and the few films I've seen him in, and then watching this again, I just think I can almost like sense you not wanted to be there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, yeah, he's really miscast. And um, it, 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 the usual thing, your three-hour film, it's gonna bandy around and, and not be able to focus on the bits you want on enough. But it it just got to the point where, like you say, if you haven't got that emotional engagement, you're not gonna care. Mm. And it. Because this film is just like a series of emotional money shots, it's just it's just ticking boxes for like this huge payoff. Um, I just thought I'm I'm not on board with this. Mm. So I'd watch Infinity War again, and I'd probably watch the Ragnarok again. And I, I I'm tempted to dip into other Marvel films, but it's this whole building to a culmination thing. I think it's just yeah. scope. I just don't think I like scope in movies. And I think it sounds like for you the the stuff which like the stuff where it's a culmination of many many other films, and that so it's not just the scope on the screen but the scope across these different movies. Yet it loses you. You prefer the more self-contained ones. I mean, you can watch Thor Ragnarok or something like that and not really have any knowledge of the other Thor films, for example. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I'd never seen anything. And no. at the end of it, when it like the, the ship descends and they go, "Oh shit!" and it ends, I thought, "Well, now I've got to watch Infinity War." People yeah. had to wait a year or two for that, but I watched it straight away, and I thought, "Oh, I'm on yeah. board with this." But now uh, I can watch the yeah. Ragnarok, and when it finishes, think, "Well, I know what happens next. I don't, I don't want to watch those." I like Captain Marvel, and that was quite self-contained, so that's worth a watch. Nice. Um, I will. I will watch. I think I'll watch a few more because because you can check them on the background and look yes. up ten minutes ten minutes in and think I haven't really missed anything. No. Okay. Um. Well, I'll quickly run. Are these on? Oh, they're on Disney Plus, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um. I will talk about a film called Mind Warp, which I paid for on Prime because I don't know why I felt I had to watch it. Probably because it stars Bruce Campbell and Angus Scrimm. Um, wow. It's a 1992 sci-fi horror. Uh, there's this thing called Infinisynth, um, a.k.a. the happiness system, where um, basically this it's a virtual reality system sort of in the future. And this 
uh, and everyone's kind of plugged into this virtual reality system to live out their fantasies permanently, basically. And this one woman wants to stay awake and not be plugged into this virtual reality system, right? So imagine the Matrix, um, uh, except everyone is fully aware of the virtual reality into which they're plugged. Um, and they're even plugged in via a connector in the neck, which I'm pretty sure happens in the Matrix as well. Anyway, um, so this woman, she pleads with this robotic overlord to let her go. And he surprisingly agrees and takes her offline. But then she is exiled into this snowy wilderness. And suddenly the film becomes a cheap Mad Max knockoff. Not as cheap as Endgame, though. Not that one. Um, so Bruce Campbell rocks up at that <laughs> point. He plays a character called Stover, who's a grizzled survivor in the wasteland. And he takes care of Judy, this in-worlder, as, she, as he says. Um, and he teaches her to survive. And like a true Tom Atkins, he gets it on with her within seconds, obviously. Um, anyway, so they're, they're kind of doing their thing. But then they're captured by mutants who take them to an underground lair where they're captured and subjected to ritual violence, basically. And the rest of the film is them, these two and others trying to escape from this underground lair whilst being brutalized by mutants and occasionally slaying the mutants in grotesque ways. It feels a bit like the film's made up as it goes along, but hey, I don't know who the film is really aimed at. That's that's an issue. <laughs> I mean, it's far too silly and whimsical and old fashioned to qualify as a legit like Mad Max type film. But it's also unbelievably violent. Like there's one scene where a child, a child has an eye torn out and then she's thrown into a blender and then the mutants drink her blood and there's this subplot about incest. And so it's really not for young people at all. Uh, the monster makeup is fantastic. The set design is pretty decent, considering the obvious budget restraints. Um, there's a, a lot of tiresome myth building. Um, and it, it, I, I found it felt like a almost like a, a grotty splatterhouse version of like a Doug McClure movie um, uh, where like a, a group of characters will venture underground and find the twisted quasi-religious society. Um, and there's a bit of a boy and his dog, I suppose, in that regard, except this is far more stupid and far less charming. Um, the script is complete twaddle. But it does have a certain unpredictability that does hold the attention to the end and is has a totally outrageous twist in the middle that makes no sense whatsoever. And I kind of admired its dedication to total grimness and misery all the way through because um, it becomes kind of laughable. It's like something Clive Barker would conjure up, um, not least because the mutants actually resemble the Nightbreed mutants sometimes. So... It's yeah, it's all over the place, but it does get a half recommendation from me simply for being unique. It's not actually good, but it is unique. What was, what was that called? Sorry, Mind Warp. Don't know why it's called Mind Warp either. Get <laughs> about it. Um, I you reminded me of you saying I thought it was something called like Mind Warp. I watched um a film that I'm not going to talk about um called Fugitive Mind with Michael Dudikoff. And I was watching it as as my son fell asleep in my lap, and I thought, this film can't be about this. 
and it's him on like this this like village and obviously michael dudikoff is an extremely capable martial artist mm. and, and and his wife says something and he says oh no we've lived here for three for, for like six years she says oh no we moved in three months ago and then he runs mm. to his neighbor and says how long have you lived next door to you and he says oh like, three months and he said oh but i've got memories going back six years and then he finds this huge facility and it's very clear that his mind has been altered <laughs> and yet he spends 90 minutes running up to people and saying do you know me? what's going on and I, and I thought come on mike <laughs> like get with the program and like put some jeans on that up to your tits and do some kicks um <laughs> Yeah, put on I'm, your fighting trousers. <laughs> your fighting trousers. Are we? Are we? Are we okay for going for like a few more minutes? Uh, yeah, well, I think I think so. I, I I'm happy to do one more. I think. And I, how many? I mean, I've got millions more I could do. <sighs> yeah, I know. Before I'm we just pass out completely. Um, let me just have a really, really quick look at this list then, so I can. Um, I can I do two really quickly. Go for it. I watch Moana. Um, and oh, yeah. and, and I, I I really enjoyed this. Uh, I and I think it's because I'm so familiar with the songs, like Shining, very familiar with and this like film. You're Welcome and stuff. And yeah. as a big fan of of Dwayne Johnson, um, I which ties into my next film. I just had this um, like Faye listens to the songs quite a lot. She used to just check them on YouTube and the thing, and I, I they found them really jaunty and. Uh, not Jermaine Greer, Jermaine Clement, um, you know, as, as singing the song Shiny stuff. Yeah. So I, I thought, oh, I'm going to sit down and watch the film properly, like actually sit down, glass of wine, watch the whole thing. And I really enjoyed it because I liked how it was, I liked it was a different culture. And, and, yes. I, and I, I enjoyed films where, where they're talking about like Maui and they're talking about the, the culture of the film. I, I like it when, when it's a film like this, where you can afford to like, zone out for a couple of minutes just going on my phone and just wikipedia a few things and just like learning about other cultures thinking oh this is good mm. fun and i liked how it was a very s- s- obvious straight journey and i mm-hmm. and i found that at the end when she meets in the island i thought that was really beautiful and then when she collapses down and forms a little man i thought that's really nice actually mm. and and i found it really um i thought this is a film i could watch again because there every song in it is really strong apart from yeah. one oh apart from when it finishes and then they over the credits, it's just remixes of the songs that yeah. are really that are really weak. And thought, what a strange decision. Let's write these amazing songs that like mm-hmm. are really catchy and like really like sort of uh you know like raucous and, and, and uplifting, and then just get really boring covers of them at the end with the vocal covers. Yeah. So yeah, really like Moana. Watching that, said to Faye, right, we need to watch some more Dwayne Johnson stuff because she fancies him as well. And I watched Red Notice. Mm-hmm. And do you remember a couple of weeks ago on one of the podcasts, I said I watched a few Ryan Reynolds films, and Ryan Reynolds is Ryan Reynolds in every film. And yes. I realise now, not only is the Rock the Rock in every film, but the Rock loves loves being in jungles, like all of his films. He's in the fog and jungle, and I'm in the middle of watching Jungle Cruise. <laughs> oh, you know he's in jungle. Um, so yeah, so but anyway, going back to Red Notice, I thought Jesus Christ, this film is like one of the biggest openings in Netflix history. And and it's got Gal Gadot, The Rock, and Ryan Reynolds. And I swear to God, they may as well just be going by their own actual names because <laughs> it is such a by the numbers. Oh, you like Ryan Reynolds? He's Ryan Reynolds. And they say that for he may as well do that for every character. And you're watching it and like the twist 
the twist is literally an old bearded man on a donkey coming over the hill doing the twist as you look at him <laughs> through a telescope. And I'm just thinking whilst listening to Chubby Checkers, let's twist again. <laughs> but I but I enjoyed it and I thought because I like The Rock, because I like Ryan Reynolds, and because I like Gal Gadot, I'm t- this is fine, you know. But I, was, I would imagine that's exactly what they're relying on to yeah, get people to watch I was it. To be honest, so unsurprised by the entire film, <laughs> and it is literally trousers down, cheek partingly begging to be a franchise, and there is no, there are no legs for that to be a franchise. <laughs> There are no legs. But then, does that matter? Because it's just them being them. Yes. So. I think it, it was, yes. The predict, it's almost like you described exactly what I imagined it was and exactly why I didn't watch it. Because of the <laughs> lack of, just complete lack of surprise or innovation in it. I just thought, I, it's, this looks like something which is playing it very, very safe. But I, I suppose in a way that can be quite nice sometimes as comfort food, I suppose. I will say that like, the, like Ryan Reynolds does have like a, a pretty, he's so brazenly himself in films. Yes. It, like the, his delivery and his mannerisms that it, it's almost, and he is so likable that you think, I, I really, I really can't imagine anyone else doing else this and getting away with that without pissing me off. Mm-hmm. But uh, but he's but every time I watch Deadpool, Deadpool two, or I watch Free Guy, or I watch Six Underground, and I watch this, I always think this is going to be the film that he's going to piss me off in and go mm-hmm. over that and become a caricature. And somehow he never does. I don't know how he does it. He is on it's a, a knife edge. Yeah, it's a real skill. Um, but always I'm on board and I'm like just flowing with it, thinking oh, I'm having a really good time. Yeah, it's odd. We'll it's really odd. And the same with the rock. Um, but I think it's just because they're like really inherit in, um, inherently nice guys. Uh, yes, I think the wholesomeness definitely yeah. helps. It doesn't seem to be. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be any uh, uh, malevolence or in either of them. Um, They've really, but they've really gone out of their way not to kind of portray piss any dark off. edges, I suppose. <laughs> not to piss. Oh, guys, we can make whatever films we want. We can't piss off a slightly overworked Welshman in his late thirties in Cardiff, though. Oh, we'll uh, keep yeah. that close to our hearts, right? <laughs> um, all right, I'll finish just by quickly talking about a film called The Manor, as in M A N O R, The Manor. This is an Amazon original. Um, and it's a new film directed by Axel Carolyn, an actor-turned-director who's bang into horror. She's directed episodes and segments for The Haunting of Bly Manor and Creep Show and American Horror Story and stuff. So it stars Barbara Hershey, who's looking gorgeous and glamorous at 70, and she has a health scare and she's moved into this luxurious, supported home. Um, she's much more alive than a lot of the other, the older ladies there um and it's quite a sensitive story i mean it's a horror movie but it's quite a sensitive story also about a woman who's not ready to decline into old age um but yeah she sees these portents everywhere she sees she's like dead birds and semi-comatose patients and she's she's getting a bit of fear about her she starts having disturbing visions uh, and dreams 
and she's not sure if they're genuine visions or simply aspects of her declining mental health it's a pretty standard setup in a way like a, a pretty regular person enters this home slash hospital slash asylum and they become gradually aware of the authoritarian nature of the establishment and i but i think this one stands out because because of barbara hershey's character her personality and her performance um and it, and it's this essential ambiguity because of her oncoming dementia it works really well in the realm of horror it works really well in terms of like what, what can you actually trust that you see with your eyes i think um and it could have been a quite dull slow burn film but um axel carolyn um just loves all the schlocky aspects of it so we do get some of the slow tension but we also get jump scares and monster makeup and really silly psychological horror and it ends up with some bonkers wicker man style hammy horror um which possibly may be where some people will like fall off this particular wagon but i i liked it um i like where it went i enjoyed it it's called the manor and it's on amazon it's a film I'm actually um, quite familiar with because uh, Faye put it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said, oh, I'm going to watch this film. And then, of course, when it became apparent, it was about um, like dementia, which is something that has afflicted her family very recently. Uh-huh. I, I said, I really don't think you should be watching this. I'm, I'm just going to say that and I'm not going to say anything else. And she said, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And then 10 minutes later, she silently just put something else on like a Christmas film. <laughs> and I, so yeah, it, it, I think if you've got someone in your family suffering from that, it's, it's not, <laughs> yeah, it's, it probably uh, could it, be a it, little bit close to it. Close it, it, remi- it reminds me of a time years and years ago when I was with someone and their parents had just split up and I suggested putting on about Schmidt and <laughs> And it was one of the oh worst, goodness. easily one of the worst decisions of my entire life. I yeah. did not, I did not have sex that evening. <laughs> um, so, I think the day before I got married to my wife, um, I think we watched Fatal Attraction, which was a strange <laughs> choice. Yeah, that wasn't so good that one, but um, cool movie. Um, anyway, so yeah, film of the week then. You. yeah um well i'm looking because it's weird because the films of the week on my phone and there's a few i haven't chatted about <laughs> both of them starring jason statham um but i i like thor ragnarok i i was surprised by because when someone says that's my favorite marvel film i thought right well i've got nothing like the, the problem is that i get the impression from chatting to you know friends and family around around this podcast that there's this thing that we we dislike marvel but i think it's just we have low expectations of them and yeah it's not dislike it's it's yeah it's just like indifference yeah yeah and i i enjoyed the ragnarok and i'm looking at the rest of the films like i really like moana red notice literally did what it said on the tin and i haven't talked about a few others but and I, i didn't i know it's a bit of an easy one but there's something about the rewatchability of LA Confidential. Yeah. There's something timeless about that film that I think could, can be re- revisited and gone back to a lot of times. So, and, and when I watched it, I thought, 
there's a real quality here. And of course, it's the start yeah, of like Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe. It's a proper film, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's a good one. So, LA Confidential for me. Okay. Well, I mean, I watched a couple of Stone Cold classics with the French Connection and The Killing Fields, but. I mean, they're classics for a reason. Whereas I, I would say my film of the week would be Leave No Trace because that's oh, probably nice. underseen, if anything. And so it should be watched. And, you know, it's it's no, not it's not a long film. It's a very enjoyable film. So definitely, definitely worth if, watching. If Leave No Trace can be Mark Kermode's, like the British premiere yeah. film reviewers, like pick of the year mm-hmm. and still be underwatched. It, it takes you mentioning it to push it into the stratosphere and make people watch it. What 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 channel is it on? Prime. Granada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's on, it's on Prime, is it? Okay. Yeah. So, um, and I'm gonna set the Arkans there for the next. Um, oh, I'm yeah. gonna, sh- should I watch the Killing Fields Rupert? Um, I think is, it, yes, <laughs> is the simple okay. answer. Uh, but, I mean, it's not. It's not exactly laugh a minute, but it's it's just so well crafted as a piece of film craft. It's just amazingly well made. Um, so yeah, I would say definitely, and it's got great great performances in it. And it's nice to be reminded of when Joel Malkovich uh, had some kind of energy <laughs> in his performances. So yeah, really cool, really cool film. Um, are you ready for the next Arkansas? I am. I'm literally going to write it down. You're holding your pencil in your hand. So you and the audience, and, and it's now 5-2, I think, to you. Yeah. Have got to get from Chuck Norris mm-hmm. to Brie Larson. Oh, my goodness. It's cross-generational. That's where the problems start. You're a monster. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been amazing. And, and sorry for croaking at everyone. But I've actually, I think this has been a really good episode because it, it feels that like we've covered a lot of different genres, which is always really nice. Yeah, and so much with good films for once. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that um, well, it's been a pleasure. And um, we'll, we'll have to keep avoiding watching any further films because I've still got 400 on my list. But, yeah, um, yeah. And they just they're just turning into mist in your mind. So it's yeah. just it's just these yeah. I'm looking. Oh, at there's one things. there's one I, I watched watch on that? Netflix literally about three months ago, and I still haven't mentioned it because it's so average. Um, we should we should do this like very soon next week. Oh, yeah. By the way, and we never normally do this. I logged into Amazon Prime yesterday, and I was just like putting about to put on Peppa Pig for my son, so I could like have a pee and make a coffee. And it, it suggests I logged in on my account, and it said I can't even remember the name of it. It's some pun on Amsterdam, right? I, th- I think it said Amsterdam, right? Okay, yeah. And I yeah. thought. I've never heard of that. And it just said, a serial killer is killing people in Amsterdam. And it's called Amsterdam in the 80s. And I thought, well, I've got to watch that, haven't I? Have you heard of it? I I think it might have been recommended to me as well, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. Almost certainly. I love that shit. Okay. (laughs) Well, you see, and maybe next time. I love you all. Sorry for croaking at everyone. And I'll speak to you soon. Love you. Bye. Rupert. Before you go, Rupert, you're still there. Yes. My love for you is like 
looking through a diamond and on the other side of the diamond is a beautiful woman and that beautiful woman opens her mouth and out of her mouth and onto your lap falls a fiver. 